Chapters forty three and forty four of Tristram Shandy, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman, Volume One, by Lawrence Stern. Chapters forty three and forty four. Chapter forty three. Obadiah gained the two crowns without dispute, for he came in jingling with all the instruments in the green bay's bag we spoke of, slung across his body, just as Corporal Trim went out of the room. It is now proper, I think, quoth Dr. Slop, clearing up his looks as we are in a condition to be of some service to Mrs. Shandy, to send upstairs to know how she goes on. "'I have ordered,' answered my father, "'the old midwife to come down to us upon the least difficulty, "'for you must know, Dr. Slop,' continued my father, "'with a perplexed kind of smile upon his countenance, "'that by express treaty, solemnly ratified between me and my wife, "'you are no more than an auxiliary in this affair, "'and not so much as that.' unless the lean old mother of a midwife above stairs cannot do without you. Women have their particular fancies, and in points of this nature, continued my father, where they bear the whole burden, and suffer so much acute pain for the advantage of our families, and the good of the species, they claim a right of deciding, on souverain, in whose hands, and in what fashion, they choose to undergo it. They are in the right of it, quoth my uncle Toby. "'But, sir,' replied Dr. Slop, not taking notice of my uncle Toby's opinion, but turning to my father, "'they had better govern in other points, and a father of a family, who wishes its perpetuity, in my opinion, had better exchange this prerogative with them, and give up some other rights in lieu of it.' "'I know not,' quoth my father, answering a little too testily to be quite dispassionate in what he said, "'I know not.' quoth he, what we have left to give up, in lieu of who shall bring our children into the world, unless that of who shall beget them. One would almost give up anything, replied Dr. Slop. I beg your pardon, answered my uncle Toby. Sir, replied Dr. Slop, it would astonish you to know what improvements we have made of late years in all branches of obstetrical knowledge, but particularly in that one single point of the safe and expeditious extraction of the foetus, which has received such lights that, for my part, holding up his hands, I declare I wonder how the world has. I wish, quoth my uncle Toby, you had seen what prodigious armies we had in Flanders. End of chapter 43 Chapter 44 I have dropped the curtain over this scene for a minute, to remind you of one thing, and to inform you of another. What I have to inform you comes, I own, a little out of its due course, for it should have been told a hundred and fifty pages ago, but that I foresaw then twould come in pat hereafter, and be of more advantage here than elsewhere. Writers had need look before them, to keep up the spirit and connection of what they have in hand. When these two things are done, the curtain shall be drawn up again, and my uncle Toby, my father, and Dr. Slop shall go on with their discourse, without any more interruption. 
First, then, the matter which I have to remind you of is this, that from the specimens of singularity in my father's notions, in the point of Christian names, and that other previous point there too, you was led, I think, into an opinion, and I am sure I said as much, that my father was a gentleman altogether as odd and whimsical in fifty other opinions. In truth, there was not a stage in the life of man, from the very first act of his begetting, down to the lean and slippered pantaloon in his second childishness, but he had some favourite notion to himself, springing out of it, as sceptical, and as far out of the highway of thinking, as these two which have been explained. Mr. Shandy, my father, sir, would see nothing in the light in which others placed it. He placed things in his own light. He would weigh nothing in common scales. No, he was too refined a researcher to lie open to so gross an imposition. To come at the exact weight of things in the scientific steel-yard, the fulcrum, he would say, should be almost invisible, to avoid all friction from popular tenets. Without this, the minutiae of philosophy, which would always turn the balance, will have no weight at all. Knowledge, like matter, he would affirm, was divisible in infinitum, that the grains and scruples were as much a part of it as the gravitation of the whole world. In a word, he would say, error was error, no matter where it fell, whether in a fraction or a pound, t'was alike fatal to truth, and she was kept down at the bottom of her well, as inevitably by mistake in the dust of a butterfly's wing, as in the disk of the sun, the moon, and all the stars of heaven put together. He would often lament that it was for want of considering this properly, and of applying it skilfully to civil matters, as well as to speculative truths, that so many things in this world were out of joint, that the political arch was giving way, and that the very foundations of our excellent constitution, in church and state, were so sapped as estimators had reported. "'You cry out,' he would say, "'we are a ruined, undone people.' "'Why?' he would ask, making use of the sorites or syllogism of Zeno and Chrysippus, without knowing it belonged to them. "'Why? Why are we a ruined people? Because we are corrupted. Whence is it, dear sir, that we are corrupted? Because we are needy. Our poverty and not our wills consent.' And wherefore, he would add, are we needy? From the neglect, he would answer, of our pence and our halfpence, Our bank-notes, sir, our guineas, nay, our shillings, take care of themselves. Tis the same, he would say, throughout the whole circle of the sciences. The great, the established points of them, are not to be broken in upon. The laws of nature will defend themselves. But error, he would add, looking earnestly at my mother, Error, sir, creeps in through the minute holes and small crevices which human nature leaves unguarded. This turn of thinking in my father is what I had to remind you of. The point you are to be informed of, and which I have reserved for this place, is as follows. Amongst the many and excellent reasons with which my father had urged my mother to accept of Dr. Slop's assistance, preferably to that of the old woman, there was one of a very singular nature, which, when he had done arguing the matter with her as a Christian, and came to argue it over again with her as a philosopher, he had put his whole strength to, depending indeed upon it as his sheet-anchor. 
it failed him, though from no defect in the argument itself, but that, do what he could, he was not able for his soul to make her comprehend the drift of it. "'Cursed luck!' said he to himself, one afternoon, as he walked out of the room, after he had been stating it for an hour and a half to her, to no manner of purpose. "'Cursed luck!' said he, biting his lip as he shut the door. "'For a man to be master of one of the finest chains of reasoning in nature, and have a wife at the same time with such a headpiece that he cannot hang up a single inference within side of it to save his soul from destruction. This argument, though it was entirely lost upon my mother, had more weight with him than all his other arguments joined together. I will therefore endeavour to do it justice, and set it forth with all the perspicuity I am master of my father set out upon the strength of these two following axioms. First, that an ounce of a man's own wit was worth a ton of other people's, and, secondly, which, by the by, was the groundwork of the first axiom, though it comes last, that every man's wit must come from every man's own soul, and no other body's. Now, as it was plain to my father that all souls were by nature equal, and that the great difference between the most acute and the most obtuse understanding was from no original sharpness or bluntness of one thinking substance above or below another, but arose merely from the lucky or unlucky organisation of the body, in that part where the soul principally took up her residence, he had made it the subject of his inquiry to find out the identical place. Now, from the best accounts he had been able to get of this matter, he was satisfied it could not be where Descartes had fixed it, upon the top of the pineal gland of the brain, which, as he philosophised, formed a cushion for her about the size of a marrow pea, though to speak the truth, as so many nerves determinate all in that one place, t'was no bad conjecture, and my father had certainly fallen with that great philosopher plumb into the centre of the mistake, had it not been for my uncle Toby, who rescued him out of it, by a story he told him of a Walloon officer at the Battle of Landon, who had one part of his brain shot away by a musket-ball, and another part of it taken out after by a French surgeon, and, after all, recovered, and did his duty very well without it. If death, said my father, reasoning with himself, is nothing but the separation of the soul from the body, and if it is true that people can walk about and do their business without brains, then certes, the soul does not inhabit there. Q.E.D. As for that certain, very thin, subtle, and very fragrant juice, which Colionissimo Bori, the great Milanese physician, affirms, in a letter to Bartolin, to have discovered in the cellulae of the occipital parts of the cerebellum, and which he likewise affirms to be the principal seat of the reasonable soul. For, you must know, in these latter and more enlightened ages, there are two souls in every man living, the one, according to the great Metaglingius, being called the animus, the other the anima. As for the opinion, I say, of body, my father could never subscribe to it by any means. The very idea of so noble, so refined, so immaterial, and so exalted a being as the anima, or even the animus, taking up her residence and sitting dabbling like a tadpole all day long, both summer and winter, in a puddle, 
or in a liquid of any kind, how thick or thin soever, he would say, shocked his imagination. He would scarce give the doctrine a hearing. What therefore seemed the least liable to objections of any, was that the chief sensorium, or headquarters of the soul, and to which place all intelligences were referred, and from whence all her mandates were issued, was in or near the cerebellum, or rather somewhere about the medulla oblongata, wherein it was generally agreed by Dutch anatomists, that all the minute nerves from all the organs of the seven senses concentred, like streets and winding alleys, into a square. So far there was nothing singular in my father's opinion. He had the best of philosophers of all ages and climates to go along with him. But here he took a road of his own, setting up another Shandian hypothesis upon these cornerstones they had laid for him, and which said hypothesis equally stood its ground. Whether the subtlety and fineness of the soul depended upon the temperature and clearness of the said liquor, or of the finer network and texture in the cerebellum itself, which opinion he favoured. He maintained that next to the due care to be taken in the act of propagation of each individual, which required all the thought in the world, as it laid the foundation of this incomprehensible contexture, in which wit, memory, fancy, eloquence, and what is usually meant by the name of good natural parts, do consist the next to this and his Christian name, which were the two original and most efficacious causes of all, that the third cause, or rather what logicians call the causa sine qua non, and without which all that was done was of no manner or significance, was the preservation of this delicate and fine-spun web, from the havoc which was generally made in it by the violent compression and crush which the head was made to undergo, by the nonsensical method of bringing us into the world by that foremost. This requires explanation. My father, who dipped into all kinds of books, upon looking into Lithopedus Senonesis de Partu Difficili, note, the author is here twice mistaken, for Lithopedus should be wrote thus, Lithopedii Senonensis Icon, the second mistake is that this Lithopedus is not an author, but a drawing of a petrified child. The account of this, published by Athosius in 1580, may be seen at the end of Cordius's works in Spacius. Mr. Tristram Shandy has been led into this error either from seeing Lithopedus's name of late in a catalogue of learned writers in Dr. Blank, or by mistaking Lithopedus for Trinicavellius from the too great similitude of the names. Upon looking into Lithopedus Senonesis de Partu Difficili, published by Adrianus Smelgot, had found out that the lax and pliable state of a child's head in parturition, the bones of the cranium having no sutures at that time, was such that by force of the woman's efforts, which in strong labour pains was equal, upon an average, to the weight of 470 pounds avoir du poids acting perpendicularly upon it, it so happened that in 49 instances out of 50 the said head was compressed and moulded into the shape of an oblong conical piece of dough, such as a pastry-cook generally rolls up in order to make a pie of 
"'Good God!' cried my father. "'What havoc and destruction must this make "'in the infinitely fine and tender texture of the cerebellum? "'Or if there is such a juice as Borry pretends, "'is it not enough to make the clearest liquid in the world "'both feculent and mothery?' "'But how great was his apprehension "'when he farther understood "'that this force acting upon the very vertex of the head "'not only injured the brain itself,' or cerebrum, but that it necessarily squeezed and propelled the cerebrum towards the cerebellum, which was the immediate seat of the understanding. "'Angels and ministers of grace defend us!' cried my father. "'Can any soul withstand this shock? No wonder the intellectual web is so rent and tattered as we see it, and that so many of our best heads are no better than a puzzled skein of silk, all perplexity!' all confusion withinside. But when my father read on, and was let into the secret, that when a child was turned topsy-turvy, which was easy for an operator to do, and was extracted by the feet, that instead of the cerebrum being propelled towards the cerebellum, the cerebellum, on the contrary, was propelled simply towards the cerebrum, where it could do no manner of hurt. "'By heavens!' cried he, "'the world is in conspiracy to drive out what little wit God has given us, "'and the professors of the obstetric art are lifted into the same conspiracy. "'What is it to me which end of my son comes foremost into the world, "'provided all goes right after, and his cerebellum escapes uncrushed?' "'It is the nature of an hypothesis, when once a man has conceived it, that it assimilates everything to itself as proper nourishment, and from the first moment of your begetting it, it generally grows the stronger by everything you see, hear, read, or understand. This is of great use. When my father was gone with this about a month, there was scarce a phenomenon of stupidity or of genius which he could not readily solve by it. It accounted for the eldest son being the greatest blockhead in the family, "'Poor devil,' he would say. "'He made way for the capacity of his younger brothers. "'It unriddled the observations of drivellers and monstrous heads, "'showing, a priori, it could not be otherwise, "'unless, <clears throat> I don't know what. "'It wonderfully explained and accounted for "'the acumen of the Asiatic genius, "'and that sprightlier turn and a more penetrating intuition of minds "'in warmer climates.' not from the loose and commonplace solution of a clearer sky and a more perpetual sunshine, etc., which, for aught we knew, might as well rarefy and dilute the faculties of the soul into nothing by one extreme, as they are condensed in colder climates by the other. But he traced the affair up to its spring-head, showed that in warmer climates nature had laid a lighter tax upon the fairest parts of the creation, their pleasures more, the necessity of their pains less, insomuch that the pressure and resistance upon the vertex was so slight that the whole organisation of the cerebellum was preserved. Nay, he did not believe, in natural births, that so much as a single thread of the network was broke or displaced, so that the soul might just act as she liked. When my father had got so far, what a blaze of light did the accounts of the Caesarean section and of the towering geniuses who had come safe into the world by it, cast upon this hypothesis. Here, you see, he would say, there was no injury done to the sensorium, 
no pressure of the head against the pelvis, no propulsion of the cerebrum towards the cerebellum, either by the os pubis on this side, or the os coxugis on that. And pray, what were the happy consequences? Why, sir, your Julius Caesar, who gave the operation a name, and your Hermes Trismegistus, who was born so before ever the operation had a name, your Scipio Africanus, your Manlius Torquatus, our Edward the Sixth, who, had he lived, would have done the same honour to the hypothesis. These, and many more, who figured high in the annals of fame, all came sideways, sir, into the world. The incision of the abdomen and uterus ran for six weeks together in my father's head. He had read, and was satisfied, that wounds in the epigastrium, and those in the matrix, were not mortal, so that the belly of the mother might be opened extremely well to give a passage to the child. He mentioned the thing one afternoon to my mother, merely as a matter of fact, but seeing her turn as pale as ashes at the very mention of it, as much as the operation flattered his hopes, he thought it as well to say no more of it, contenting himself with admiring what he thought was to no purpose to propose. This was my father, Mr. Shandy's hypothesis, concerning which I have only to add that my brother Bobby did as great honour to it, whatever he did to the family, as any one of the great heroes we spoke of, for, happening not only to be christened, as I told you, but to be born too, when my father was at Epsom, being moreover my mother's first child, coming into the world with his head foremost, and turning out afterwards a lad of wonderful slow parts, my father spelt all these together into his opinion, and as he had failed at one end, he was determined to try the other. This was not to be expected from one of the sisterhood, who are not easily to be put out of their way, and was therefore one of my father's great reasons in favour of a man of science, whom he could better deal with. Of all men in the world, Dr. Slock was the fittest for my father's purpose, for though this new invented forceps was the armour he had proved, and what he maintained to be the safest instrument of deliverance, yet it seems he had scattered a word or two in his book, in favour of the very thing which ran in my father's fancy, though not with a view to the soul's good in extracting by the feet, as was my father's system, but for reasons merely obstetrical. This will account for the coalition betwixt my father and Dr. Slop in the ensuing discourse, which went a little hard against my uncle Toby. In what manner a plain man, with nothing but common sense, could bear up against two such allies in science, is hard to conceive. You may conjecture upon it, if you please, and whilst your imagination is in motion, you may encourage it to go on, and discover by what causes and effects in nature it could come to pass, that my uncle Toby got his modesty by the wound he received upon his groin. You may raise a system to account for the loss of my nose by marriage articles, and show the world how it could happen, that I should have the misfortune to be called Tristram, in opposition to my father's hypothesis, and the wish of the whole family, godfathers and godmothers not excepted. These, with fifty other points left yet unravelled, you may endeavour to solve if you have time. But I will tell you beforehand it will be in vain, for not the sage Alkife, the magician in Don Belianis of Greece, nor the no less famous Urganda, the sorceress, his wife, were they alive, 
could pretend to come within a league of the truth. The reader will be content to wait for a full explanation of these matters till the next year, when a series of things will be laid open which he little expects. End of chapter 44